0: Buddy, this is Sarah, your host of Talk to the Hand podcast, the podcast about the 90s, everything you love about the 90s, and more. What's up everyone? So glad to have you back. Hope you're all doing okay. It's, you know, it's been a doozy of a week, but today I'm talking about a topic that actually really inspired this whole podcast, really. It's not necessarily a rosy topic, uh, not sunshine and rainbows and unicorns, But it's a very um, important topic to me, and yeah, so that's what I'm doing. Um, I'm sure you can guess this is a music genre. I'm sure you can guess by the title. This is a music genre of the 90s. Like I said, the one that inspired me to start this podcast because when I was in high school— I was particularly drawn to this genre of music and it inspired me to want to go to school up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, so I actually spent my first two years of my undergraduate um, studies up in Tacoma. So, and then I transferred uh, back down to California, but I did, uh, I did move out to Seattle for a couple years and uh, it was really because of, and I guess you could probably guess by now, grunge. I was obsessed with grunge in high school. I was just, absolutely enamored by the sound and the artists and yeah, yeah. so today I'm gonna be talking about grunge that's it I'll go into the style I'll go into the background I'll go into notable acts and albums the legacy of the genre as well as what the last two remaining living grunge icons are doing these days but before I begin I just wanted to like always a couple things make sure you are register to vote. Check your registration. Like I said last week, the week before, it is so easy. USA.gov slash confirm dash voter dash registration. Again, I will put this in the show notes. Make sure you are registered. And please, 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 please vote, 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 vote. This is important. Very important. This is a literal life or death election for so many people. So please vote. Um, also, please make sure you are following us on social media, pod on Twitter, and talk to the hand pod on Instagram. Also wanted to give you another small note. By the just naming the topic of grunge, you'll probably understand that there is going to be some trigger warnings here. There's uh, substance abuse and addiction, mental health warnings. Grunge is some heavy stuff. Um, so just wanted to let you know that going in. It's also the art is just so beautiful. So I don't want you to think that we're going to be, you're going to have to leave this next, however long, 45 minutes to an hour and just go like bleach your brain bleach. Whoa. Interesting. Uh, (laughs) go bleach your brain with some, you know, puppy videos. No, it's not going to be like that. I, I grunge is such, such an incredible art form, but it is heavy. It is a heavy, heavy topic. Content is heavy, but it is truly a beautiful output by musicians in the 90s, especially Seattle musicians in the 90s. So I used multiple sources. Again, three sources I'm going to give you. There's an article from NPR in 2013 called The Women of Grunge Reclaim Rock History in These Streets. A You Discover musical, Music article called He Forced Music to Evolve, Artists Pay Tribute to Kurt Cobain's Legacy from April 2020, and a Washington Post article from May 2017 called After Chris Cornell's Death, Only Eddie Vedder is Left. Let that sink in. Uh, that hit me on, hit me hard. I don't know about you, but. Okay, so what is grunge? What is grunge? When you think of grunge, you probably think of flannel and you probably think of Nirvana and you probably think of Seattle and you probably think of all different kinds of things, right? Well, you are probably right <laughs> because it's a very, it was a very easy to define, in my opinion, the boundaries to grunge are are pretty solid. It's, it's, it's not difficult to define what grunge is. There are some bands that kind of float those boundaries, but there's a core, core circle. And grunge is a hybrid of multiple styles of music, particularly punk and metal. It was an exploration of what it means to be true to yourself. It was an exploration of addiction, of sexuality, of darkness, of trauma, of pain, of social alienation, of self-doubt, of abuse and neglect and betrayal and social and emotional isolation. How many acts did this in such a gritty, unsanitized way before grunge. I can't really think of that many. There was nothing glamorous or romantic about grunge, but people were over glamor, literally. They had outgrown glam metal. They were over the live life in the fast lane. They were over that kind of rock and roll. They were over that sound and they needed something that just literally shut that whole thing down and just said, okay, (laughs) you might be living life in the fast lane, but like take a breath for a second and dig a little bit deeper Why what you're trying to cover up here. And that's really what these bands, I think, explored. There were some major grunge acts, songs, names, everyone has heard of. Everyone's heard of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, and I even include Smashing Pumpkins. I know that's probably a controversial to say especially considering how much billy corgan hates 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 being lumped in with grunge but i'm gonna lump them in anyway because you know what same ears same vibe whatever like i said there's so many that kind of float in and out they're one of them um and there's so many others those are just the ones like mud honey um mother love bone was which was pearl jam's predecessor there's so many bands that really made grunge, grunge in the 90s. But those are just the main ones. And those are the ones that everyone knows. So the title, the name grunge as a genre title is literally supposed to mean dirty. According to legend, it was really expensive and time consuming to get your recording to sound clean in the studio. So for these bands that were literally just starting out, it was easier to just leave the sound really dirty and just crank up the volume. So that dirty sound from the fact that they were also broke and they also really had no idea what they were doing. And they just didn't care. And they, they didn't care that they just weren't professionals. Um, so that whole sound, that whole vibe kind of kept that term grunge afloat. Cobain, Kurt Cobain himself hated, 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 hated the word grunge and despised the scene that developed because he thought there were so many inauthentic bands claiming to be from Seattle and just co-opting the genre. And that's not, he wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong about that. I also have to put in here, that must be how a lot of black artists and performers felt when their genres were co-opted by white performers throughout the centuries. Just want to put that out there. But most artists didn't like the label grunge and didn't want to be labeled at all. So you saw, you know, you saw gutter punks and you saw punk, crest punks and, and those, those alt, you know, different sub-genres adapting and just kind of embracing the term punk – then you then you on the other side of that coin the grunge artists hated that they just hated labels they hated everything that labels represented they didn't want to be called grunge it was really grunge was really kind of what other people called them particularly british the the british news and the british media which was they were absolutely fascinated by grunge in the 90s so the musical style vibes what it was about it was very dark there was a lot of angst filled anguished singing, there was a lot of desire for freedom, this resigned despair. A lot of the artists and songwriters talked about things like depression with an quote unquote ironic sneer. They talked a lot about authenticity and being true to yourself. They talked about addictions, disenchantment with the state of society and discomfort with prejudices. They weren't as overtly political as punk, their punk peers, but they still had concern for those social issues especially for young people and but unlike the the punk rockers the punk rockers were mostly like hey get out there and do something the grunge artists were more like we're all just fucked that's that's basically what what their opinion was They also had this really strong, like I said, with punk. Grunge also had this mistrust of authority. There was just this feeling of being burnt out. Kids were depressed about the future. This, like I said, really contrasted and um, what is kind of a one eighty from the glam metal of the eighties that was all about partying and drugs? Like, well, not that grunge wasn't about drugs too, but different drugs. Living life in the fast lane, partying, just that glamour of Sunset Strip. Just that's what the the eighties was, and this was very, very different. These songs were about love, about messed up love, about heroin, and. You know what? Also, I I don't want to also gloss over it. heroin was also a problem, too, in glam metals, um, the glam metal scene as well. But it was definitely took a backseat to, you know, the other kinds of drug abuse and substance abuse of the, you know, wild glam hair metal days. The songs, these songs, though, were about ugly issues and ugly ways to deal with them. And they, that's that's what really made it so revolutionary the recording and production style was called it was a low fidelity lo-fi um, and they had really really low budgets nirvana's bleach album their first album what they recorded it in 1989 for 600 dollars like literally it was 606 dollars or something like that it had this raw unpolished sound that had this distortion but no added studio effects so it was just it was it was just so raw and and unpolished and and organic and just real, and it felt like like a true outward expression of what was on the inside. But the produce there's a producer that was credited for kind of perfecting that sound, if you want to call it perfecting. I mean, it's the beauty of it is uh, the perfect sound is to be imperfect. It's it's to be raw. Um, his name was Jack Endino, and he worked on Bleach. He worked on Soundgarden's Screaming Life album. He he worked with Green River, Screaming Trees. Um, he worked with Hole, L Seven. There's another. Recording engineer called Steve Albini, who was another big name in the development of Grunge, he preferred to have the entire band play live in the studio rather than the usual mainstream rock's approach of recording each each player and each instrument on a separate track at different times and then mixing it together in a multi-track recording. That makes a more polished sound, but it was Steve Albini and Jack and Dino that basically said, no, let's have them all record together play it together in the studio and that'll just sound more real and that's personally why I really like it I 10 out of 10 times I will always like something that's dirty and underproduced and raw and real I that's why I love grunge I would much rather hear a live recording of something than a studio recording and that's what I really like about grunge that's really it's a literal outward expression of what's on the inside and to me that's the most pure most pure beautiful form of music and art So, you know, that's just my opinion. But Seattle and the Pacific Northwest, but Seattle particularly is seen as the like haven. That's where grunge was born. Particularly, I'm actually going to go a little bit further and say it was Olympia because the Evergreen State College is in Olympia, Washington, um, which is also, you know, funny because Washington just has a lot of there. There's a lot of punk. There's a lot of grunge. There's just a lot of alternative music up there that I'll go into the punk scene in the '90s, out of a later episode, because I could literally do a whole series on that. But Seattle and um, was and UW also University of Washington and Seattle; those were like really the two places because they had those were the places that had their student um, radio stations, and um, they were also so remote from LA that the music scene was in the late '80s was seen in Seattle as being unspoiled by the industry and therefore pure. So. It was just kind of the perfect setup and that's also where Sub Pop was created. And Sub Pop, I'm going to get into Sub Pop right now, there is no grunge without Sub Pop. I don't know if that's a controversial take. I mean, everything I've ever learned about grunge, I, I don't, there's there's no grunge without Sub Pop. Now, not all of the major grunge acts were Sub Pop bands, but the Sub Pop bands were usually all major grunge acts, if that makes sense. Sub Pop was a record label that was founded in the mid 80s, um, but really was credited with they were the first uh, record label to sign Nirvana. They signed a bunch of them, but they were they were just kind of known as just putting that boundary around those bands, you know, making that boundary of grunge. Sub Pop is actually famous for its rejection letter. Um, The rejection letter is a form form letter. It's a really blunt form letter that informs the artists that they weren't being taken on by the label. And it opens with Dear Loser. (laughs) It says, Dear Loser, sorry, we can't take your stuff right now. We have too much. But it also says that their demo package was now, quote unquote, On its way through the greater lower intestine, uh, that is the talent acquisition process. It was pretty brutal. (laughs) Um, But like I said, the label was founded in 1986 by Bruce Pavitt and Jonathan Poneman. They signed Nirvana, Soundgarden, they signed Mudhoney. They started in the 80s when Bruce Pavitt started a fanzine called Subterranean Pop. And it was about indie record labels, which... He was able to, he did that as a, as a project when he went to Evergreen State College in Olympia. So then he he created the zine. They, they were called zines back then. He created this zine called Sub Pop, and then he started alternating issues with mixtapes of underground bands that he had heard. And then he moved to Seattle in 83, released the final issue. But while he stayed there, he wrote a column for a local newspaper called The Rocket. And this column was called Sub Pop USA, and it was – he talked about underground bands. He also started releasing LPs that were mixes of the the bands that he had heard and mixes of songs that he – that he liked and uh, he was able to turn it into a label by recording Green River's album Dry as a Bone. That was the first album he put out. He called it Ultra loose grunge that destroyed the morals of a generation. And then he found Jonathan Poneman, who invested in the label by giving him $20,000, and then he became a full-time partner. So Bruce Pavitt focused on the A&R, which is music industry speak for artists and repertoire. That's basically talent scouting, while Poneman did the business and legal stuff. They incorporated in 1988 in April and according to them, they, they almost went bankrupt a month after. But then they signed Mud Honey and released their first single called Touch Me, I'm Sick in August and started to pick up steam a little bit. They set out to make this what they called the quote unquote Seattle sound with Jack and Dino. Um, and like I said, that, that they kind of set out to make this to put those boundaries around the bands. They released Love Buzz, which is, was the debut single by a small group of three guys from Aberdeen, Washington, named Kurt, Chris, and Dave, aka Nirvana. So they put out Love Buzz. They also started a subscription service, which was kind of like their first, almost um, kind of like a Netflix thing, where they would send demos if you, you paid each month, and they would send you like a certain number of demos. And uh, it's pretty cool. They started that And it was a little, you know, had a little cult following. And um, some people were critical of sub-pop, saying that they marketed the Seattle sound that actually really peaked in the late 80s rather than in the 90s that it's credited for. Um, Because there were actually a ton of different sounds coming out of Seattle in the 80s that ranged from folk rock to psychedelic rock to garage rock. What a lot of critics think is that they just took kind of, the essence of the late 80s and just monetized it and and turned it into a marketing gimmick in the 90s. And that's how we got grunge in the 90s. But, you know, I don't know how much I believe about that. The British press were actually the first ones to become enamored with grunge music. So the two guys from Sub Pop, they flew out a British journalist in 1989, and he called grunge just like the first very American genre of music. Nirvana, like I said, they, they signed Nirvana. They put out Nirvana's first album, Bleach. And Nirvana eventually moved to Geffen Records. But Sub Pop received royalties from the sales of Bleach. And that kept the label going for years after. And then all the future studio albums that um, that Nirvana put out with Geffen were required to have Sub Pop's logo on it too. So Sub Pop still Basically, for all intents and purposes, like owned Nirvana and and owned what they would put out after. Other bands followed their exit. And then the two men sold Sub Pop in 1995 to Warner Music. And that's where it actually went on to sign bands like Fleet Foxes, Postal Service, The Shins and more. So I wanted to go over some of the notable grunge acts, songs, albums. I mentioned a few at the top. I'm going to say them again. And the first one, of course, of course, of course, of course, we cannot talk about grunge without talking about Nirvana. I could do a whole a whole episode on just Nirvana, and I could probably do a series of episodes just on Kurt Cobain, and maybe one day I will. I'm going to start with Nirvana. Uh, and and actually, I kind of ranked the albums um, when I was doing my script here of my favorite. And my first favorite actually is the MTV Unplugged album. Um, that one came out in 1984, MTV Unplugged in New York honestly tied with live and Folsom prison for my face lo- favorite live album ever but the reason why i really like it is because they covered a david bowie song man who sold the world and that's still my favorite track and it's actually still my ringtone and yes i still have a ringtone in 2020 <laughs> the second album they released was in september 1991 and it was uh, honestly the one everyone knows it, never mind everyone knows that one it's the baby swimming in the pool right you know that one that one had Smells Like Teen Spirit, Come As You Are, Drain You, In Bloom, Territorial Pissings, all the bangers. All the heaters were on that album. I, well, not all of them. There's plenty of them on Bleach and In Eatero. But Nevermind was what is still is one of the best selling albums of all time. It was certified diamond by the Recording Industry Association of America in March 1999. And it's still among the most acclaimed albums in the history of music. It brought grunge and alternative rock to the mainstream, and it severed that tie to hair metal. I cannot think of two more opposite vibes than grunge and glam. Nirvana's Nevermind didn't just open that door, it kicked it open. <laughs> I mean, it, it they are exactly opposite, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Library of Congress added the album to the National Recording Registry in 2004, which is pretty cool. The historian in me is like, all right, that's cool. In 1993, the band released In Utero, which had Heart-Shaped Box. Everyone knows that one. Dumb, All Apologies. All Apologies is one of my favorite songs by them. And like I said, Bleach came out in 89. That A, a notable song on that album is about a girl. And Kurt was the main songwriter. He used power chords that combined pop hooks with dissonant guitar riffs. And Dave Grawl said that Kurt once told him that the music comes first and the lyrics come second. That above all, Kurt really just focused on the melodies of the song. That was most important to Kurt. And that's Honestly, I think that's what makes it so easy to connect to just because it is so melodic and it is so beautiful and it is written so purely from from the heart. Someone working on the album even said, even though you can't, you can't really quite tell what he's singing about, you knew that it was intense as hell. Kurt hated when journalists used to come up with meanings to his lyrics. He would call those second rate Freudian evaluations, and that 90% of the time, they've probably even transcribed the lyrics incorrectly. Nevermind was when the attention national and international attention really started to fall on Kurt rather than the album the music or even the band as a whole. You could go on to Spotify or Apple or YouTube or anywhere you get your music and listen to all the you know the major hits, but you just have to listen to Nevermind. I mean, Nevermind's just an album I everyone needs everyone should have some familiarity with. It's just it, truly transformative. I can honestly say it's one of my top five albums of all time. I'm getting goosebumps because I love it so much. Kurt famously took his own life in 1994 after years of depression and addiction. Some question if he took his own life or if other people were involved. There's theories. There's theories like up to your eyeballs. I have no idea. I know what I think might be true. But like I said, it's complete speculation. So I won't even say it. But sadly, he did die April 5th. 1994 it's really really heartbreaking it's just he's he truly was a tortured artist he's in my mind the definition of a tortured artist just an absolute brilliant brilliant mind so all right well, moving on after that sad note all right well so the next band I wanted to bring up to was Pearl Jam so Pearl Jam was also from, they were from Seattle. So Nirvana's from Aberdeen, which is not Seattle. Pearl Jam was from Seattle. Pearl Jam was formed in 1990 um, with Eddie Vedder on lead vocals and lead guitar. It was formed by a couple of guys from Mother Love Bone, which was another grunge act that um, broke up in 1990 when their um, lead vocalist died from a heroin overdose. But the main album that Pearl Jam, their main album was released in 1991. It's called 10. Their second album, it was called Versus in 1993. And then their third was Vitalogy, which went multi-platinum. And Pearl Jam was really famous for kind of being really... um, vocal and like making weird stances so they didn't like making music videos they didn't like giving uh, interviews they also sued Ticketmaster in the mid 90s and in 2006 Rolling Stone said that they were a band that basically quote spent much of the past decade deliberately tearing apart their own fame I mean that's that's true. <laughs> Eddie Vedder was this little surfer guy from San Diego. He joined the band after he got a demo tape from the former Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer, Jack Irons. And uh, Pearl Jam actually had an original name. Their original name was Mookie Baylock, but they changed it to Pearl Jam. Their style is Notably less heavy than the other grunge acts, they had a lot of influences like The Who and Led Zeppelin and Neil Young and The Ramones. Eddie Vedder tried to make the music less and less catchy, saying, "I felt with more popularity, we were going to be crushed, and our heads were going to be we're going to pop like grapes." That's such a weird thing to say, but whatever. Later in the night, artists. Am I right? Later in the '90s, they started incorporating more punk influences and. But they've always liked to be very outspoken politically. So, that's Pearl Jam. So the next band I was going to touch on is uh, Alice and Chains. Alice and Chains also formed in Seattle in the late eighties, in nineteen eighty-seven. Um, they took the name from frontman Lane Staley. Actually, was in a glam band called Alice N Chains, like Guns and Roses. Alice N Chains, and they actually took the name. His old bandmates, Lane's old bandmates, didn't actually like. That they took it, but they were like, whatever. We're not using it anymore. Just whatever. So they took. So they took Alice in Chains. They made it Alice in Chains. They made it really heavy. Uh, the harmonies were from Lane, and the other band's other vocalist was Jerry Cantrell. And they actually became a two-vocal band after 1992, which is a rare thing. Their first album was Facelift in 1990. The song Man in the Box comes from that album. Dirt in 1992. They had a self-out self-titled album in 1995 and an EP in 94 called Jar of Flies. Lane died actually sadly in 2002 from complications from, from his decades of substance abuse. They were a great band. Alison James was a great band. Man in the Box is still one of my favorite songs by them. That's a good song to work out too if you need a good soundtrack. Um, that's a good one to like, I don't know, do some weights with or go on a run. It's it very, very adrenaline pumping. Lena not just was in a glam band He was also in a funk band The band was actually called Fuck Before it was called Alice in Chains Which I thought was interesting Another band that I wanted to mention was Soundgarden. Um, I think everyone knows Soundgarden just because Chris Cornell, the famous front, hunky front man, sadly passed away in 2017. He took his own life after a show, um, battled addiction for decades and decades, very sad. But Soundgarden was an incredible band as well, uh, formed in Seattle in 1984 by Chris Cornell and lead guitarist Kim Thale. Uh, They were one of the first sub-pop bands. They were the first grunge band assigned to a major label. They signed to AM Records in 1989, but they weren't actually popular until the early 90s with their contemporaries in Seattle. Their biggest successes were Super Unknown in 1994, and that one had Spoon Man and Black Hole Sun. You guys know Blue—I know you guys know Black Hole Sun. If you don't, go on Spotify or iTunes or whatever and listen to it because I know you know that one. They broke up in 1997. Like I said, Chris Cornell sadly, very sadly, took his own life in 2017. Their sound was very sludgy. It was very murky. Um, they had a fuzzy distortion. They had very evident Led Zeppelin influence. They were also very influenced by Black Sabbath. And then they had some British post-punk uh, influences like Bauhaus. Chris Cornell was known for his dark existential lyrics. And they were also known for their drop detuning. Uh, Sometimes the E strings were tuned even lower, like on the song Rusty Cage, where the lower E is actually tuned down to B. And they also used really unorthodox time signatures. So they they just did funky stuff with music. They really pushed the envelope. And then the last band I wanted to include in this list doesn't quite fit as neatly into the label of Grunge, but I'm going to include it anyway because I call it Grunge Adjacent. And that band is Smashing Pumpkins. But they were formed in Chicago, so they're not Seattle, by Billy Corgan. And they kind of have this goth rock, metal, dream pop, psychedelic rock, progressive rock sound. Um, They're most popular for their album in 1983, Siamese Dream. And they had another follow-up album in 95 that was also very popular called Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Like with me in this podcast, they're routinely lumped in with the grunge music, which Billy, like I said, Billy Corgan hated that. Um, And he started a lot of fights within the indie world because he hated being boxed in with anything. A couple of other notable bands, Screaming Trees, Mudhoney, Blind Melon, and The Melvins. This is kind of where it gets a little dark. You, you can't talk about grunge without just at least acknowledging the use of controlled substances and how, how the genre was shaped so much by deaths from heroin use. Like I said, Andrew Wood, who was the front man for Mother Love Bone, he would, that was, like I said, the pre-Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam, died in 1990. He was the first big overdose in the genre, in the community. Um, Stephanie Sargent from the punk band Seven Year Bitch died in 1992 from an OD. Kurt Cobain OD'd a few months before his death in 94. Lane Staley and Mike Star of Alice in Chains both died from complications and drug-related causes from their years and years of his Uh, stone temple pilots frontman scott whelan died of an od on his tour bus and that was in 2015 that wasn't that long ago and stone temple pilots my fiance and i have a debate whether i should have included stone temple pilots i think i should include them but they're more post post grunge um but still definitely part of that um, culture, that culture of drug use. And like I said, Scott Whelan also died of an OD on his tour bus in 2015. Kristen Pfaff, the guitarist for Hole, also died from an overdose. Um, the only ones that are left are Eddie Vetter, who actually wasn't known for using heroin. He didn't really ever use it. And then Dave Grohl didn't get into drugs. In fact, I, I once heard there's like an urban legend. I can't find. I, w- I looked to find it when I was researching for this episode, but I couldn't find it necessarily. But I know there's an urban legend that says when they all got rich, the other musicians just blew their money on drugs, and Dave Grohl was just excited that he could get a bigger grill and barbecue more. <laughs> so that I Dave Grohl still still around. Didn't get into drugs like the other ones. Um, Chris Novo- Novoselic. He also the. The bass player from Nirvana, but yeah, he's still around too. Um, so I don't want to say Dave Grohl and Eddie Vedder are the only ones left. They're not. There's there's still other ones, but those are the two main ones, the two big legends. In 1996, Rolling Stone came out with an article about Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood and how that was where most of the users um, would do their drugs in and it kind of talked about how Seattle was kind of this heroin black hole. People came for the music and stayed because of the heroin, whether they intended to get into it or not. And some people say Seattle was also linked because it's a port town and also because of the grim weather. So there's a lot of factors that kind of played into the heavy drug use and therefore the sound and the depression and those the vibe of the music a lot of runaways went to seattle for that lifestyle they actually sought that out some people even say and this this is what really broke my heart some people even say in the article that heroin was a shortcut to credibility and integrity and that the indie labels would give them deals and tours if they were heavy users because it gave them kind of that street cred as a grunge band that's how that's how linked heroin use was in the grunge movement. It's heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. That's that's a heavy that's a heavy part of the topic, but like I said, it's very important to understand that that background when you're listening to the music and putting the music into its context. Music was another way that these artists dealt with the pain as well and the trauma that they'd experienced. Okay, so Moving on to something a little more, a little more uplifting, women in grunge. So I can't talk about grunge without trying, without bringing up women because there were women in grunge. All of the acts that I've told you about have been all men. Granted, they're men that are connected with their feminine. They all, you know, they have their long hair. Kurt Cobain was very Supportive of the women in the in the movement in the in the genre. He used to perform in wedding dresses, so there was there there is a femininity in grunge, um, but there aren't a lot of women in grunge itself. Everyone knows Courtney Love. Everyone knows Hole. Everyone knows L Seven, which I don't even think I could call grunge. But I'm going to make a bold statement and say that the women of the Pacific Northwest were actually swimming upstream in a completely different river from their male grunge peers. The rivers were parallel. Don't get me wrong. They were both commenting on feeling alienated from the youth culture at large, being depressed and angry about being subject to corrupt power. They were both about being authentic to themselves and speaking nothing but truth, no matter how hard it was, how hard it was to hear or how much it hurt to hear. But they were both swimming up different streams, and I think the women drifted more towards punk. Hear me out. Riot Girl was a movement that Again, began at Evergreen State College, started by Kathleen Hanna, the founder of Bikini Kill, and I believe Kurt Cobain actually dated one of the um, musicians, one of the women from Bikini Kill. Um, So they're very they're very intricately um, mixed. The Female, like riot girl punk and grunge in Seattle and Olympia and the Pacific Northwest in the '90s. So, like I said, riot girl was started by Kathleen Hanna. Uh, she was the founder of Bikini Kill, which is a famous feminist riot girl punk band, um, building on the inspiration and legacy of women like Suzy Sue from Suzy and the Banshees. Um, Patty Smith, Debbie Harry, to form a cohesive movement about women Women literally moving to the front. Their, their war call was girls to the front. Um, Bikini Kill's most famous song is called Rebel Girl. Personally, one of my favorite songs. And it's it's a great song. Like I said, go listen to it. I'm not going to put it in here for licensing reasons. Go on whatever, wherever you music, listen to Rebel Girl by Bikini Kill. Flyers. So back then during this Riot Girl movement... Um, and this women in the Pacific Northwest during the time of grunge, they used to make these flyers that would read as manifestos for the movement. And these flyers would say things like resist psychic death and don't let the world make you into a bitter, abusive asshole. These would, these would appear in what they called zines. And that's short for magazines, zines. Zines were feminist publications that were independently created and circulated. And believe me, Believe me, I will do an entire episode on Riot Girl. I promise. The other thing about Riot Girl is, I know I mentioned them too in my Spice Girls episode. They were very the the movement, the Riot, Riot Girl movement was very critical of Spice Girls and thought that they misappropriated their their girl power um, and kind of watered down the girl power message. Go listen to my Spice Girls episode. I'm not going to get into that now. Just wanted to put that out there. Make your own opinions. Like I said in that episode, tell me what you think. Another, uh, I also want to mention, uh, besides Riot Girl, Hole and Courtney Love. That was actually an L.A. band. Um, they weren't totally grunge, but definitely one of the most iconic feminist bands from the era. If not the biggest band to discuss gender issues in their songs. And they. that's the one thing about Courtney Love. She expi- explicitly talks about... Body image abuse and sexual exploitation. She even talked about that outside of her music. So Courtney Love, you know, she was a former stripper slash dancer. I like the term stripper just because I think it's empowering. Um, but she was a former stripper, and that's how she made money to buy amps and she bought their backline for their shows with their money with the money she earned stripping. Married Kurt Cobain in 1992, and Hole is really popular for songs like "Doll Parts" and "Celebrity Skin." lover or hater. For whatever reason, there are lots of people who feel the latter. She was an icon in the 90s. Cobain also credited Kim Deal, the front woman and bassist of the Pixies, as one of his biggest inspirations for Smells Like Teen Spirit. He also, like I said, used to... There's a lot of pictures of him playing or chilling in wedding dresses. Um, And then in... 2011, two Seattle musicians, Greta Harley and Sarah Redinoff, created a play called These Stre- Streets, which was based on oral histories about the women who played music and created music during the 90s in Seattle. So has appeared in other movies. In- Throughout the years um, and other other ways, the fashion uh, is very iconic. The flannel and the long hair for guys. There's a movie called Singles. Everyone should see. Um, that's a very iconic grunge movie. Uh, Gus Van Sant's Last Days is very Cobain esque. Um, so its legacy does live on. And then about the legacy too. Just to you know, kind of wrap this up. The legacy. Nirvana and Kurt Cobain have. Their legacy could be an entire episode. Like I said, you'll – you see people wearing Nirvana clothes everywhere – So Kurt just had those soul-melting eyes, the long blonde hair. He inspired a ton of songwriters. He was an agent for social change, addressing toxic masculinity and sexual assault. He was a fan of female bands. He was way ahead of the industry. He also supported other artists outside of the mainstream. And he had a really great friendship with RuPaul, who, if you know me, is also one of my all-time favorite humans slash heroes. And RuPaul has said that that's what drag is all about, is that punk rock, be true to yourself. Nirvana also did some benefits, headlines and benefits for um, groups that were working to end discrimination for LGBTQ communities. And then the last thing about their their legacy, everyone learns Nirvana songs when you're learning power chords on the guitar. <laughs> I remember I learned it myself. Smells Like Teen Spirit was the first the first song I learned on guitar when I learned the power chords, uh, that was the power chord section of my my classes, my lessons. I was not dance in high school, and uh, my friend and I uh, choreographed a dance to Smells Like Teen Spirit. And it was so fun and so cool that we actually got it in the end of year recital. We got to do our Smells Like Teen Spirit just because it was so different from everything else. That was really fun. So the musical legacy, what came after Grunge? Uh, and and what, what did Grunge do for the music industry? So Grunge is what popularized Hidden Tracks. So hidden tracks are songs that the artists and the producers and the engineers will put in the album, the physical copy of the album in places that you can't find unless you specifically rewind or you wait or you, you know, it's it's that's the hidden track. It's not really a thing we do anymore. Unfortunately, we can't with the digital age, something that we did lose. Um, It popularized MTV Unplugged. That was must see TV in um, the 90s. It was part of traveling festivals like Lollapalooza. And there were a lot of bands that came after post-grunge. There's um bands like Bush and Candlebox, alternative metal, alt metal, like Creed, three doors three doors down, puddle of muck. And there was also kind of this, like I said, the British um, had a lot of respect for grunge. And there was kind of this post-grunge UK Brit pop movement like Blur and Oasis. They also influenced a ton of new metal bands like Korn and Limp Bizkit and Slipknot in the early 2000s and the early aughts and the late 90s as well. So, like I said, there's two remaining grunge icons, Dave Grohl and Eddie Vedder. Dave Grohl is, uh, he played drums for Nirvana and now plays, uh, he sings and plays guitar for Food Fighters. Food Fighters just released their ninth album in September 2017. He also plays drums with them, um, Crooked Vultures, which was a super group, and has recorded and toured with Queens of the Stone Age, another fantastic band. I mean, oh my goodness. Eddie Vedder still playing with Pearl Jam. They just released their 11th album in 20. And he also has written uh, material for a lot of movies like Body of War, Rain Over Me, Dead Men Walking, and I Am Sam. He was also the uh, inspiration for the character of Jackson Maine in the movie A Star is Born. And Bradley Cooper hung out with Eddie for about four or five days just to get some tips on the character. So... So that's it. That's it for grunge. Wow. I literally, it's been 40 something minutes. I could talk about this for hours. And if you, if you're my friend, I probably have. So sorry. I know this is such a vast topic and I could narrow in on so many aspects of this. And I have, like I said, I've written, I I used grunge in school to write papers and I want to hear from you. Did you, like, did you listen to grunge in the 90s? Uh, Did you listen in the 2000s? Do you listen to it now? Do you like the genre? Do you think it's overrated? Do you like Kurt Cobain? Uh, Do you like... Pearl Jam, do you like? Chris Cornell, Soundgarden, Eddie Vedder. uh, Like, do you like, do you like grunge? I want to hear your opinions. Let me know on social media. T-T-T-H pod on Twitter. Talk to the hand pod on Instagram or email me at talktothehandpod at gmail.com. Website is talktothehandpod.com. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, I have a great topic your way. It is going to be October. So you know what that means. We're going to get spooky. Spooky, spooky. Oh my goodness. I, I, October is my, that's my time of year. Everyone get ready. Um, just remember, just, just, just remember, please remember to check your registration again. I'll put that in the show notes, but it's usa.gov confirm voter registration. And just remember, be excellent to each other. Everyone. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Yeah. <laughs>